I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. This is Season 1, Episode 16, and we are still working our way through Chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. I mean, honestly, four episodes on this one chapter. I never realized how deep and really meaty this section of God's John's Gospel really is until doing this podcast. I think in the past, I always just focused in on the beginning, you know, the miracle of Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. And I sort of stopped there. I didn't go on to see how Jesus used the subsequent confrontation with all the religious leaders to very boldly, very clearly articulate his outrageous claim to be God in the flesh. This was never my go-to passage when questions about Jesus's teachings on his own nature, his own divinity ever came up. I always went other places. But here, Jesus is very forceful. You know, one trend among some folks is to only want to read what's called a red-letter Bible, meaning a Bible that only has in it the words spoken by Jesus himself. And that comes from the fact that some Bibles do print the actual words of Jesus in the Gospels in red. But the modern push to a red-letter Bible kind of carries with it the idea that only Jesus's words are worthwhile, and the other words in the Gospels and the New Testament and the Old Testament, well, they just don't apply to us today. Uh, or that they're in some way not in line with what Jesus actually taught, or they just don't have the same level of authority in our lives as Jesus's words. It's one way people attempt to turn the Bible into a nice book of platitudes about, you know, loving everybody, how God is love and love is love, and that's all you ever have to think about. There's nothing wrong with reading the very words of Jesus, but two things. First, we only know those red-letter words of Jesus because the gospel writers wrote them down. So if you don't trust the gospel author's integrity, then you can't trust that they accurately wrote down Jesus's words. They could have conspired to write down whatever they desired and create a Jesus of their own design. And so if you're left with nothing, if you, if you discount the authenticity of the gospel writers, and that's all we've got. Jesus didn't write any books of his own. We only have his words faithfully, I believe, recorded by the apostles, and that's certainly what the church investigated for a long time uh, before they put the canon together of the books of the New Testament. Remember, all of the disciples except for John died for proclaiming as truth what they wrote about Jesus. Tortured, martyred, beheaded. I wouldn't die for a hoax. I don't know about you. But they all died testifying that the words of Jesus that they recorded are his actual words. And second, the words of Jesus alone are incredibly powerful and challenging and demanding. If you really look at what Jesus actually said, you'll be both comforted and terrified. So yes, go ahead and read just the words of Jesus because they are astounding in their fullness. Don't just hunt and peck for the words you like or the words that confirm your pre-existing opinions. Read Jesus's words. In this fifth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus makes a list of amazing claims about himself, and we've looked at some of those. He claims to be the Son of God, the one sent by the Father, the source of all life, both physical and spiritual. He's the judge of all the world, and all history is headed toward a confrontation with him. He's the one who will raise the dead, the one who will one day empty all the cemeteries. People listen to these claims with their mouths wide open. I mean, that's a lot to say about yourself. And many people asked, how do we know he's telling the truth? What evidence does he give? And knowing what was in their hearts and minds, Jesus proceeds to give them his credentials, starting in verse 31. 
Now, before we get to that, some folks have contacted me about wanting to support the podcast, but they don't want to do the monthly options promoted by my hosting site. I understand that perfectly. There's nothing I can do to change how the site's process works. So if you want to offer support in a different way, you can use Venmo to send me a gift or mail a check. And I put my address and Venmo info in the episode description for this one. I'm not trying to be mercenary, but your support does help to offset my production costs. And if you do become a supporter, please, please send me your email and I'll return the favor by sending you the scripts of each weekly podcast. Thanks again. I appreciate all your encouragement. All right, let's get ready to hear the words of Jesus from John chapter 5, starting with verse 31. Jesus says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent." You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you did not believe what he wrote, how can you say you're going to believe what I say? In this section, Jesus reveals three witnesses whom he says will back up all his claims. And again, I'm relying on Ray Stedman's commentary to navigate through all this. This practice of calling witnesses was in line with what the Old Testament law uh, determined. Deuteronomy 19.15 said, where Moses said, Out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So Jesus is very careful here to build his case in accordance with the Old Testament law, because he's not overthrowing or getting rid of the Old Testament, he's fulfilling it. And he doesn't want to give his detractors any more false ammunition to attack his credibility. Credibility was certainly a struggle then, just as it is today, because we live in a fallen age. Our politicians, our influencers, our scientists, our thought leaders, they can all claim just about anything and even contradict each other with their spin on the facts. And we don't know whether to believe them or not. We don't know who is really credible, who's pushing an agenda, who's telling the truth. You've probably heard the expression that the facts speak for themselves, but that is never true. People always put their interpretation on the facts. So then we make decisions about what to believe. And in Jesus's day, people were just as prone to make false claims as today. 
So the law prescribes that there must be at least three, two to three witnesses, people who corroborate the testimony. And this is what Jesus is doing. The first witness is Jesus himself, verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. When Jesus says his testimony is not true, he does not mean it's false. He means it was not true in their eyes, and by itself it was not a valid testimony. Looking ahead to chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus makes this claim. Even if I do bear witness to myself, my testimony is true, for I know whence I have come. So it's not that he's lying, but he recognizes the fact that in order to be accepted by the general public, his testimony must be backed by two or three other reliable sources, called fact-checking, I guess we'd say that today. One of the frustrating things about being a preacher for so many years is that each week, you know, you're pouring out your heart to help people understand Scripture and a lot of times it feels like it's water off a duck's back until they hear it from another voice, a guest speaker, or they attend another church who says essentially the same thing you've been saying all along, but in God's timing, finally, you know, through their thick heads, the light goes on in their minds. You know, I had one guy tell me upon visiting another church that he finally heard some good Reformed theology, he said, I never got that before, which is kind of a backhanded insult to me. And I just wanted to ask him, you know, where have you been? I mean, it's all I ever preach. I mean, he wouldn't know Reformed theology if it bit him on the nose. But finally, the light went on for him, and whatever was said penetrated his brain. And that's a good thing. What I understand is one person plants the seed, another person waters, but God's the one who makes it grow. Or as the Japanese expression goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Sometimes people just need to hear another voice for God's truth to penetrate their souls. Jesus says that other voice initially was John the Baptist, whom he looked at, whom we looked at in earlier a podcast. Verse 32, there's another who testifies in my favor. That's John the Baptist's testimony. And his testimony actually had a profound effect on Jesus himself, not just on the ones who heard John speak. Jesus is strengthened by what John said. He says, I know that my testimony about me is true. The word for know there means to, to believe, to experience inwardly or deeply or instinctively. It's not just an intellectual belief. It's an inner confirmation, an affirmation, an inner consciousness and an awareness that John's words were true. John's words resonated in Jesus's heart in a really powerful way. And this is, is partly what accounts for Jesus's boldness. If you have an inner consciousness of what you're saying is true, you tend to speak more boldly and confidently. But what happens when someone stands with you shoulder to shoulder? Greater confidence, because you know you're not alone. And this is what Jesus feels as he speaks about himself, knowing that he's supported by the witness of John the Baptist. Jesus says in verse 33, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Well, if you go back and look in the previous chapters, John the Baptist said four specific things about Jesus. First, he announced to him to be the long-expected, long-predicted Messiah, the one whom the prophets wrote. John even quoted the words of Isaiah concerning Jesus, or concerning himself, saying, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's John 1.23. But Jesus was that coming Lord. And second, John announced 
Jesus to be the Lamb of God. To his own disciples, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Jesus is the innocent substitute who will one day stand in our place and take our sins upon himself and thus free the love of God to give us all the riches of Christ. Third, John announces Jesus to be the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. John 1.31 He is the one who will pour out the river of living water that will satisfy the thirst of men's hearts and souls for life and for truth. And then fourth, John declared Jesus to be the Son of God, John 1.34. He's the Word made flesh, God himself, Lord of heaven and earth, become human. Here in verse 33, Jesus declares that all that John said about him is true. And Jesus says something that sounds a little strange to us, so there's 34, Uh, Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. By this, Jesus means that though he does not need testimony from John for himself, it may be a saving help for others who need to hear a different voice. It's sort of like people who pay no attention to what is written in the Bible, get nothing out of it, but often when they listen to someone who's telling of his or her experience with God, a personal testimony, they'll listen really intently. You know, someone giving their personal story, their personal history with God. Well, sometimes people will hang on every word listening because it's just an ordinary person describing what God could do. That's what Jesus is talking about here. For your sake, John has been sent. For your sake, I call attention to the witness of John in order that you might be saved. This is a marvelous insight into the compassionate heart of Jesus. He's willing to use any approach as long as people will listen to what God is saying. Jesus goes on to say a very beautiful thing about John, verse 35. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John was a lamp. He was not the light. He was a lamp. A lamp bears or carries the light, but it is not the light itself. You have to have a lamp, but there is no light. Many people are like that. They are lamps. They have the capacity to be lights, but they are not shining for Christ. John was the kind of lamp who shone brightly. He was a witness who told people where they could see, hear, and know the light. Wouldn't it be great for you to be a shining lamp for Christ? To burn for him, burn brightly so that others can see? Let the truth of God kind of fuel your heart until it begins to burn? When you understand the amazing truth about how God operates in your world, I think that's when your heart begins to burn. And then you will start to shine. Like that old children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We want to burn brightly for him. Jesus then offers an unfortunate observation. You chose for a time to enjoy his light. People were attracted to John's light for a while, but then they grew tired of him. He was a spectacle, a wild desert man, something unusual, a distraction from the ordinary routine. He was a curiosity, a sideshow. And they listened for a while And then they got bored, and they moved on to other things. Jogging, dieting, video games, whatever. For most of those who listened to him, John was just a passing fad. And unfortunately, that's what truth about Christ is to many people today. Something that comes and goes. A fad that they cling to. A childhood thing. A temporary infatuation. And then it's gone. Something else takes its place. And now Jesus comes to the witness whom he feels is really the important one, verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father 
has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. In these words, Jesus is pointing out who the great witness really is, the really powerful corroborating word which backs up the claims of Jesus is from the Father himself. It is a witness which is invisible and universal. The testimony of God the Father, that's the most important witness. And Jesus says this most important witness is given in three different ways. This is the way the Father backs up the words of Jesus. First, through the works Jesus does. And he's referring to the healing of the desperate man at the pool of Bethesda. The people listening to Jesus had seen this pathetic man move from weakness and paralysis into strength, into functioning again, was standing right in front of them so that they could not miss him. They could not deny it. Verse 36, he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given to me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. Jesus' miracles were the witness of the Father. The man at the pool of Bethesda gave evidence of the witness of the Father. This is the truth of God, and the miracles confirm the message of his coming. The Father is still confirming his witness for Jesus. God is still at work. He's still delivering where he chooses, not always. I haven't witnessed lame people walking or blind people seeing, but I have seen God pull someone out of depression and hopelessness. I've seen God heal wounded hearts and restore broken souls. I've seen marriages saved and families reconnected. I've seen God at work confirming that God, Jesus is who he says he is. And that witness is still ongoing. Then Jesus declares there's also another way the Father bears witness. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has testified, has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is the witness which uses no voice and is never seen? Jesus refers to that inner invisible conviction of the Holy Spirit, that inner witness of the Father that in your heart you know you are listening to truth, even though in your mind you may be struggling against it. There is a witness that can get behind the mind, that can bypass the barriers put up by arrogant intellect. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford University scholar and professor who went on to become a prolific writer of Christian fiction and nonfiction, he once wrote that on the night when he was converted to Christianity, when he was older and, and already a professor, said, it was, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. His mind was still trying to find an escape as his heart and will were being captured by the witness of the Holy Spirit within. That's the power of God to bear inner witness. When you're reading the scriptures, listening to the voice of Jesus, you're not just playing games or dealing with some religious ideas. This is a total reality. It is where the whole of life is explained and the answers are found. And then Jesus turns to the third way the Father witnesses to us. He said to those listening to him, it's the study of the scripture. What a strange paradox. These men who were attacking Jesus, they were painstaking students of what we now call the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets. They spent their whole lives counting the various words and memorizing great sections of scripture and committing themselves wholly to it because they thought the knowledge of scripture would give them life. There are many like that even today. 
students and scholars who search the Bible but never find Jesus. Yet Jesus himself declares, the scriptures bear witness to me. Jesus is the main subject of the Old Testament. If you want to have an exciting experience with that book, just start reading it with the object of looking for Jesus in its pages. You will find him almost everywhere. The whole of the Old Testament, that dramatic record of the nation separated from the rest of the stream of humanity, set aside to be a particular people unto God, it's filled with references to Jesus, appearing in type and shadow, in sacrifice and in the priesthood, in ritual and in stories of human interaction, and in clear burning prophecy. Through all the sections of the Hebrew scriptures, they all point towards this oncoming Messiah, Jesus. What an amazing claim this is. They bear witness to me. If I said to you, I want to announce something, I've been reading through the Old Testament, and I find that the whole book is talking about me, Jeff Ebert. I'm sure the subject, or if I said I was the subject of the Old Testament, I'm sure most of you would just cancel out of this podcast and never return. Some of you would probably call my wife and tell her that I've lost it. I think she already knows. Anybody who makes that claim, we'd think that they were crazy. Muhammad, the great prophet of Islam who studied the Old Testament, never dared to claim that it witnessed to him. Gandhi, sort of the modern-day Buddha, never claimed that Scripture talked about him. But Jesus makes that very outrageous claim, and they thought he was nuts, and you can't really blame them. It's too much. Jesus says it's possible to study the Bible, to even give your whole life to it, and never see him. Most of my theology professors in college were exactly like that. I couldn't figure out why they devoted their lives to teaching theology when they really Deep down, they didn't really believe any of it, especially the ones who taught the scriptures, the Bible. They saw the stories of the Bible just as stories akin to Greek mythology, stories with no power to transform because they didn't have the inner witness from the Father and the spirit of the written word. What a waste of a career, teaching the Bible as a curiosity and not a life-changing encounter with the author. Verse 40 should be translated, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus clearly says that if they had come, they would have had life, but they chose not to do so. The problem is the will, the will of a hardened heart spiritually blinded. Only the persistent witness of the Spirit can soften that heart of stone. Jesus goes on to tell us why in verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll believe and accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here Jesus puts his finger on sort of the true reason for this kind of stubborn unbelief. Why would someone read the truth, know it to be true, know that it speaks of Jesus, know him to be who he claims to be, and then still refuse to come to him. Jesus says the answer is because what that person really wants is glory. Well, what's glory? The phrase in affirmation of people, other people. Affirmation, acceptance, fitting in. It's all a form of glory. We all need that kind of ego stroking. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be liked, and we want to be told we're valuable. But there's a way that that can go too far and become the deadly enemy of truth, and true wholeness. We settle for substitutes. We compromise. We want immediate response. 
We want it now, not in heaven later, someday. We get distracted by the world's worries and temptations and take the easy road. We go along to get along, especially in today's cancel culture. The adulation of peers is what drives so much these days. Clicks, likes, a desire to fit in, to belong to something. The immediate is what matters, and so folks are unwilling to go against the grain, unwilling to voice their opinion or acknowledge their Christ in the public arena. Well, Jesus adds that there's a terrible danger in that, verse 43. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Now, most scholars feel that here Jesus is referring to the Antichrist, and I don't mean to get into a whole end times thing here, but he's the representative of the devil, the evil one who will appear maybe many times throughout history, but the Antichrist comes before Jesus' final return and his second coming. Jesus is saying that he came backed by the evidence of the Word and the Spirit and the Father, that visible evidence. He came with a proper introduction, John the Baptist, who opened the door, as it was predicted he would, yet they wouldn't receive him. Well, okay, there is coming another false Christ who's going to make even grander, even more spectacular claims that he can do things for you that you've always wanted done, saying things you've always wanted to hear, and you will accept him, only to be betrayed by him. That's the danger of rejecting truth when you know it to be true. You set yourself up as a sitting duck for the next con man who comes along. Now, in one sense, Jesus is speaking prophetically here to ancient Israel. His words are very plain. How can you believe and follow Jesus when you first and foremost, you're looking out only for yourself, for your own welfare, when you are out to please yourself, when you are falling in with the philosophy of the world that is flung at you all the time, that you should look out for number one. That philosophy is a denial that you have a father who loves you. That someone else is ready to work on your behalf if you will walk in his way. When you're committed to such a philosophy, how can you follow Jesus? They are mutually exclusive concepts, and the tug of war between these two forces are apparent all throughout Scripture. You cannot love the world and love the Father. You cannot follow the Lord and the devil. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have it both ways. Now Jesus comes to the final, verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you set your hopes. It's amazing that the very one they thought they were obeying is the one who will finally tell them that they've ignored the words about Christ. Moses, whom they are using as their excuse to persecute Jesus, will instead one day become their accuser. Many are in the same boat today. I've heard people say, you know, when I stand before God, I'll have a lot of things to say to him. I don't think he's treated me very well. I got a bad deal here and here in life, and I'm going to tell him so. But on that day, they will stand absolutely mute before God, their own memories testifying that God is correct and that they are wrong. Listen to these final words from verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is a very radical portion of scripture. Most people think that if someone does not believe something, what he needs is just more light to shine on it. Give people more information, the right information, and then they'll make the right decision. Well, bloody likely. Like people who smoke. Who doesn't know that smoking causes cancer? 
More information is not going to convince a smoker to quit. If a little information does not do the trick, we just want to give them more information. But Jesus kind of tells us that's not how human beings work. If you do not believe the truth, you know, you'll not believe greater truth when you hear it. If you do not respond to what you already know to be true, you will not respond when you hear further truth. That's what Jesus is trying to say. What a radical statement. Jesus brings his public discussion to a close here. And where does he leave us? We have the witness of the Father, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Scriptures, and the witness of the Apostles, and 20 centuries of testimony from individuals about the power of Jesus to deliver men and women, to free them from their chains, to turn them around, to heal them and make them whole people. Millions upon millions upon millions of voices throughout the centuries bear witness to that fact. Where does that leave us? If we continue to pursue the empty voices of the world and seek for positions of power and influence apart from the will and the glory of God. These are gut-wrenching words by Jesus. I can't make them easy words because Jesus did not make them easy. But they are words that force us to face in ourselves the light of reality. Where are you going in life? What are you doing with your life? This is a critical hour in human history. No more critical hour has probably ever come. Let's face this choice which Jesus demands and submit ourselves to his loving lordship. Let's welcome him into each day in the week ahead and do our best to yield to him, yield our hearts, our minds, our wills, our emotions, yield to him so that he might truly be Lord over everything that we say and do, over every idea that we think, everything that comes into our hearts and minds. May it all come from his loving lordship. Have a great week.